most of the time when you enter into crisis as a leader in a moment, you continue an exhausting discussion that is on the wrong track. If you want to be a leader, end all exhausting discussions and begin a new one. Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, featuring world-renowned thought leaders and leadership experts recorded live during crisp conferences of years past. Doesn't matter what happened. Let's talk about what could happen. Let's not talk about why we shouldn't have to. Let's talk about what if we could. Let's move energy away from why we can't to how we could. You're an energy manager. And you have to start with managing your own energy and noticing how often your ego is playing you. My best advice is stop believing everything you think. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at some of our most iconic presentations from the highest rated speakers of previous CRISP summits. From the neuroscience of negotiation to what it takes to build the law firm of the future, this episode is one you don't want to miss. Everybody wants to be a boss. Everybody wants to live the American dream until it's time to get up and do what real beasts do. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we're revisiting a crowd favorite. The CEO of VaynerMedia, New York Times bestselling author and renowned marketing expert, Gary Vaynerchuk. At the Crisp Game Changers Summit last November, he took the stage and shared the most valuable strategy to reach your ideal clients and the critical difference between selling and branding. I really play in two very opposite places when it comes to business, life, philosophy, all of it really, which is so much of what I do and think about and what I admire and see in others is a remarkable level of consistency of what is truly tried and true. And then on the complete other extreme part, I really spend almost all my time trying to understand the one thing that connects everybody in this room, regardless of what they're trying to achieve, whether you're in this room and under the context of this room, you're clearly trying to achieve something from a professional lens, but the reality is, is if you're passionate about fundraising for your kid's school, or if you want to segue your career, or if you've got a side hustle, or if you decide to pivot or run for public office, there's just such a fascinating thing that has always been true, which is attention is the asset, and how you fill that attention becomes the variable of what happens. You know, I was born in the Soviet Union, and came to the US when I was three, and grew up in the 80s during the Cold War, and I've always wondered if, because of that, I've always had an extra interest 
in the media, in propaganda, in communication, because that was so much the warfare of the Soviet Union and the US, and obviously I don't have to explain to anybody in this room, I think over the last half decade, our society has started paying a lot more attention to communication. I was always fascinated by why, if there was a coup in a country, would they go to the TV station and the newspapers even before they went to the palace? And it made me always understand that this shit's important. Communication is the variable. What's really fascinating about this industry, and I have many friends in it, is when trying to grow the business, most of the DNA in this room is sales DNA. It's not brand DNA. You're not marketing, you're selling. It's why Google does so well. It's why so many people here feel comfortable allocating money to Google AdWords, because it's transactional. Somebody types something in, you spend dollars on it, you go to the top, you see and feel the ROI very quickly. I understand it. I love selling stuff. It's very easy to understand. It's very easy to invest in. What's impossibly difficult to invest in is brand. It's hard. Why am I wearing these? Because of brand. Nobody knocked on my fucking door and said, do you want to buy these Nikes? Nobody, I didn't type in Nike into it and it, this is brand. This little swoosh is worth a trillion dollars. A trillion. And so I think about that because it's easier to understand with Nike, but it's harder for a lot of people in this room to think about it from their business lens. Though we see it, many of you know, many of you have your faces on billboards and ads and newspapers and things of that nature. I believe in all that. I just don't believe in overpaying for yesterday and not investing in today. Like whatever you did to get here was about attention. Whether it was shaking hands and having friends and working the local thing, whether it, word of mouth is just attention. You did something for Craig, he liked it enough, and when Sally asked him, he referred. It's all just the same game. The problem is, and the thing that I have had an enormous amount of passion on, is if attention is the asset that grows everything, that creates the result, why aren't people interested in investing the 20 hours that it would take to understand the current space of attention? Like, I just don't understand why you wouldn't see through the curiosity and spend five hours to understand why a TikTok video might actually lead to a customer. I don't understand why you would say no. I, let me rephrase, I very much understand why you say no. You say no because you positioned it in your head as something else. You've positioned it as the thing that your kids spend all their time on, right? But what you don't do is the homework that makes you understand that over the last 18 months, the growth of 35 to 55 year olds on TikTok is so extraordinary, we haven't seen growth of consumption like that since 2011 Facebook. All of a sudden, if you understand that truth, it at least leads to the curiosity. How many people here are producing three pieces of TikTok video a day for their business, and if you raise your hand, I'm gonna check on stage publicly, so don't lie. (laughs) How many people in this entire room make three TikTok videos a day for their company? Raise your hands. Two. I'm sorry, three, sorry, Sally. Three. Three, I love it, and I love the passion of that. 
what excites me about that is because I've been making content about TikTok for two and a half years, I already have dozens of emails from lawyers, contractors, a cement provider hit me up last week that he landed a big contract from a TikTok. Do you know how insane it sounds to even say that a cement provider landed a six-figure contract from a TikTok? Even for me, as progressive and curious and in it as I am, I understand how far-fetched that may feel, but it's a reality. And this isn't a talk to say everybody run out and go make TikToks. This is a talk of are you challenging yourself to do branding work because it's the singular thing that grows anything. Branding is the singular thing that grows anything. It's just the way the world works. And so I think the opportunity is extraordinary. One more time by show of hands. By show of hands, how many people produce two original videos or written articles a day on LinkedIn? Raise your hand. One, one, two, got you, two. Again, that one I struggle with way more. But it goes back to my only interest in this talk today. Why are we, the world, this is not just this sector, this is the world, why are we not interested in putting in the 20 to 30 hours to understand something that's happening today. LinkedIn, for the last four years, has converted itself into being the business Facebook. This is not the LinkedIn we all grew up with. LinkedIn marketing isn't spamming people on email. It is making content to go in the feed. How many people here consume content on LinkedIn and know what I'm referring to? Raise your hands. Raise it high, please. I want everybody to higher, come on. Look, that is the fun thing for me. Almost half this room is consuming it. Two people are making for it. It speaks to the thing I started this talk with. I believe this room is in the sales business. And I believe if you can make the shift to understanding that you need to be in the marketing and brand business, it's the only thing that can substantially double, triple, 10X a business. It's real. It's what happens. It happens at every business. It's happened for the last 20 years as we've lived through the internet revolution. The other really interesting part is how do you get your marketing game up to grow your business? And I think that sits in a very interesting place of the common mistake of the last decade of companies of this size, entrepreneurs, executives, individuals in this room of this size has been to outsource that behavior without being able to judge if it's good. The reason a lot of you have your opinion on social is because you hired your niece or someone that sucked but you had no idea how to judge it. The ROI of a basketball for LeBron James is a billion dollars. The ROI of a basketball for me is negative $8,000. I've torn both my knees. (laughs) The ROI of social media is in the trillions. If it hasn't worked for you, it's because you don't know how to use it. 20 to 50 hours. I don't know if you've heard, there's a site that can really help you get educated. I'll give it to you, I'll let you write it down. It's G-O-O-G-L-E.com. 
How does a lawyer make LinkedIn content that works for their business? Enter. How do I make a podcast that brings me business? Enter. The world is very obvious right now. Everything because of technology on a daily basis is getting commoditized besides the human aspect and communication. Your ability to communicate to your potential customers is singularly the variable of your upside. If I'm able to just use this time together to get you to realize you've been in sales mode even when you've been doing marketing or when you've been doing marketing in the past and obviously everyone here does different things that the modern version of it is just more effective for the cost. The problem is people don't want to make the investment into the cost of creative. People don't want to invest in the videos and the pictures. They want to run the ads because they're custom from Google. Well, you just run math, right? You just run the ads, it's just words. In social, the world we live in now, the ad matters. Whether that stars you or it doesn't, the creative is the variable of success. LinkedIn ads work ridiculously well for lawyers, but there are thousands of lawyers that have emailed me over the last five years that have gotten no ROI and the 13 times I've looked at the link that they sent me in those 10,000 emails, it's because the ad sucks. It's because they're awkward on video. It's because it wasn't compelling. It's because it was somebody trying to throw a right hook without setting up a jab. This is about bringing value to the other person on the other side. You guys have so much knowledge. You can make videos of just information, what ifs. You could do what if scenarios in video form for the rest of your life. You've seen it. You've been through it. That what if is a piece of information that might make the other person feel a little more comfortable that you're not just trying to sell them. Consumers are used to television ads for lawyers that have phone numbers that is spam and direct response creative. The opportunity is enormous. We continue for some reason to disrespect technology I'd really prefer you don't. It makes absolutely no business sense whatsoever. Your ideology has nothing to do with the way you run your business. People are like, well Gary, I don't buy stuff from Facebook ads. I'm like, that's great, Harold. (laughs) But fucking three billion people do, dick. (laughs) Well Gary, I don't like Facebook, it's fake. I'm like, cool. Do you like your business? Like what's the matter with people? Next up, we take it back to our inaugural Crisp Game Changers Summit in 2018, which featured former FBI lead international hostage negotiator and the best-selling author of Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. And whether you're battling your opposing counsel or persuading your three-year-old to eat her vegetables, there's an undeniable power in the ability to negotiate effectively. So, what's the secret? Hostage negotiation is just emotional intelligence. You know, it's uh, em- empathy, if you will, weaponized empathy. That's hostage negotiation. And neuroscience. And part of emotional intelligence is what's appropriate to the moment. Because some people learn that humor is effective. And I, I don't think everybody understands really how effective humor is. To be in a good mood, to be in a positive frame of mind, makes you up to 31% smarter. No joke. Your brain has, that's almost a pun, right? No joke. Your brain has more capability when you're in a positive frame of mind. 31%, that's no small jump. How am I going to use that as a hostage negotiator? Am I, I going to call inside the bank and say, hey, 
I just flew in from Iowa. Boy, my arm's tired. Or, you know, calling the bank, say, hey, how many bank robbers does it take screwing a light bulb? You know, I'm not going to start out with jokes because it wouldn't be appropriate to the moment. But appropriate to the context, it helps everybody. It loosens the moment, and it makes you smarter. Here's an automatic way to make yourself smarter. Those of you in, in the room right now that are frowning, you're making yourself dumber. <laughs> Some of you are looking at your colleagues and said, see, I told you. No, but seriously, the interesting thing about, and what I love about hostage negotiation is backed up by neuroscience now, and these different things are completely backed up by neuro, neuroscience. Because I can, I can reach into your brain, I can flick a switch, you can't, you can't stop me. You have things called mirror neurons. I've been reaching into your brain since I took the stage. I reached into your brain just now. How do you like that? I'm inside there. Hostage negotiators use what we call the late night FM DJ voice. We don't know why it worked, we just know it worked. You have something in your brain called mirror neurons. When you hear my voice, I begin to change how your brain functions before I finish the sentence. We just knew that the late night FM DJ voice seemed to calm people down. I hit mirror neurons in your head. The mirror neurons react. It's an involuntary response. There's a bunch of involuntary responses in there. They're all tied into the mirror, the limbic system, mirror neurons, some other things like that. I can actually turn your brain down. We do a negotiation exercise, very intense negotiation exercise when, when, we, when we do training on, on business negotiation. We put, my son likes to say, my son's my director of operations, we want to put so much pressure on you, it's going to make your nose bleed. <laughs> but then while we're in the middle of doing that, I'll hit you with a late night FM DJ voice and just watch people's voices turn down. When I'm in a business negotiation and I'm going to lay out a term, there's no movement on. None. It's typically a contract term. We've always got people giving us contracts that have work-for-hire clauses in them, and we don't do work-for-hire, period. Period. Because that gives away our intellectual property. Those of you that are intellectual property attorneys know how valuable that is, and we're not going to give it away. So how do I get, and I was talking to um, uh, one of you guys earlier here, and he says, well, you don't get what you want unless you ask for it. We don't ask for the stuff we want, and we get it. How does that work? Well, if I ask you for something and you give it to me, I owe you. Robert Cialdini, one of the six principles of influence that are universal. Reciprocity is a human nature response. So I'm going to get stuff for you, but I don't want to owe you for it. Because that's how we did hostage negotiation. How am I going to do a hostage negotiation with a bank robber and owe him? That's not going to work out. Or with a kidnapper and owe him. It's not going to work out for me. I want my stuff. I don't want to owe anything. We get into a, a discussion over contract terms, and there's a work for hire clause in there. I just say we don't do work for hire. And then I shut up. Two-thirds of you shutting up is a struggle. Two-thirds of you, and it's not just because you're attorneys, it's because you're human beings. Shutting up is a struggle for a variety of reasons. I was once on the, uh, trying to coach an attorney, happened to be female, didn't matter that she was female, but she was one that had taught that if you're, if you're not talking, you're out of control. So she had to talk all the time. 
And I literally said to her to try to get her to slow down. And again, it didn't matter that it was a woman. The person in this one happens to be a woman. She's a human being. That's, and I said, did it ever occur to you to not talk? And it was the only time she stopped talking. And there's a reason why that worked, which also is contrary to the way you're wired. There's a few things about your wiring that I'm going to try to enlighten you guys to and maybe get you out of doing. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be complicated. I'm going to give you an idea right now how hard it's going to be for you. Everybody make a fist with both hands. Fist with both hands. You have to put down your stuff to do this, but it's important for you to experience this. This is an experiential talk. We're going to experience stuff together. Put your right thumb up. Put your left forefinger out. Just the forefinger. There you go. Now switch. Switch back. Switch again. Speed it up. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Make it work. Some of you are going like, ah. All right, so here's some cool stuff about that real quick, which you, you should get a kick out of. First of all, did you need to be Elon Musk to understand what I was asking? No, it wasn't complicated. But it went against how your synapses in your head are wired right now. It was awkward. Awkward is simultaneously the barrier to learning and necessary for accelerated learning. If you don't feel awkward, you're learning at a snail's pace. Awkward is accelerated learning. And that feeling, even some of you had trouble getting your left forefinger out to begin with. But there was actually a feeling in your head. That was actually the feeling of creating a new, a new neurosynaptic connection in your head. It was kind of a cool idea. And then switching back and forth, you're trying to fire that synapse. Now you've got some synapses that are built, you want to go to your default wiring. It's going to be hard getting out of that initially. A couple of things I'm going to share with you. It's going to be hard getting out of it. And it'll feel that awkward. As a side note, these days, since we're so much into emotional intelligence, hostage negotiation, which gets us into brain science, which is some cool stuff. Like, I'm really into how do I create new neurosynaptic connections because it's necessary for my health long term, my mental health. Personally, I've got something called Project 120. I want to live to be 120 years old. So I got to constantly be building my brain. So I'm doing wacky stuff that's good for my mind. Like, here's another one that I like to do to build my mental health. Brush your teeth with your opposite hand. Now, I'm willing to admit the first time I tried this, I had to move my head back and forth because <laughs> it couldn't make it work. But then what's the point of the neural, new neurosynaptic connections? Really awkward at first. How many times before you can do this quickly or any other habit? How long does it take you to build a new habit? Some of you guys know, right? How long? How long, to, how long to adopt a new habit? About three weeks, right? Interestingly, corresponds with about 63 to 64 repetitions of engaging in a skill, but doing it right, which is why you got to do it slow at the very beginning. You got to take your time. John Foley, Blue Angel pilot, I heard him give a talk about two years ago, talked about how do they wire a new groove into their head, uh, uh, a new habit in their head, because if they haven't wired the habit in their head when they go up in the sky, Blue Angel pilots crash into each other and people die. He said about 63 to 64 repetitions. That's why if you do it a few times each day, it takes, it takes about three weeks to pick up a skill. You've got to put in the reps. It's not that long, but the first few times you do it, it's going to hurt your head. 
And you know what? That's when you'll quit. Not knowing how close the goal is on the other side. Awkwardness is both a barrier to learning and necessary for accelerated learning. When we change our habits, we change our outcomes. But effectively inspiring and leading others to do the same takes a different set of skills. Cy Wakeman, workplace drama researcher and New York Times bestselling author of No Ego, took the stage at the Game Changers Summit last November and shared her modern leadership strategies, which have transformed thousands of organizations from cultures of disengagement and entitlement to ones of high accountability. I grew up in healthcare for my career. I was asked to lead a perioperative area. That's where people come to get prepared for, have, and recover from surgery. And as a leader, I know that I clearly have two jobs every single day, and then periop, it starts at four in the morning. My first job, loving people up. Second job, calling people up. So at 4 a.m., that's what I was doing. I was rounding. I was connecting with people. Hey, I appreciate you. I'm so thrilled you brought your talent to our organization. Loving them up. Calling them up. Reminder, we do sacred work here. We save lives. We transplant livers. We relieve pain. We give people different futures. Love up, call up. Love up, call up. And while I was doing that, a nurse showed up for her first patient of the day. She was working pre-op. Pre-op is pretty routine on purpose, very checklisty, so we can be safe. So she pulls up the medical record. She's just intaking the patient, getting informed consent, going through all the checklists. And while she's doing that, the patient becomes absolutely hysterical. The patient begins to cry. She asks for her clothes back. She's like, get me my husband. No one's touching me. And the nurse was a little perplexed. Her reaction was so out of proportion to the work being done. She turns to the patient and she begins to inquire. Come to find out, there was a mistake in the medical record. The patient came in for like a nose job and the nurse is prepping her for a partial hysterectomy. Right? Some of you are like, what hospital? So the nurse tends to the patient, gets her a little less hysterical, but as the patient becomes less hysterical, the nurse realizes she's furious. And she tells the patient, this is unacceptable, I'll be back. And she comes out looking for a leader. She finds me. I'm out loving people up and calling them up. She goes, Wakeman, are you leader on deck? Oh yeah, I am. How can I help? She begins to tell me her story. She's like, this place is ridiculous. And the people in admissions, they don't care about patients. Their mistakes can kill people. And we always have to cover their butts. And this is my license on the line. And I won't have it. And we've met with them like eight times. And they don't even care. And she's scowling and she's looking down, calling for heads to roll. That's like not nurse behavior. I think she was really disarmed by my response. First thing I did is I checked myself opened my heart up and opened my mind up. I hope you'll do the same. As a leader, when people come in hot, you say, cool. Don't match their urgency. Do not match their frequency. You need to stay calm, cool, and collected. And she was coming in hot, so I took a breath, and then I looked at her and I said, if you'll do me a favor, take a really deep breath. I wanted to reset her parents' sympathetic nervous system. There's no saber-toothed tigers running through the hallway. 
right? Like breathe. And she did. And then I said, now, if you would entertain a question, I'd be so grateful. If you were great right now, not if they were great, if you were great right now, what would great look like? If you were great right now, what would great look like? And to her credit, she entertained the question and everything changed even though nothing had changed. She went from scowling and looking down and she looked up and all of a sudden it was like she saw a ton of options. She said, you know, if I were great right now, I'd be back in the patient room, explain to the patient this is a process that's working. We'll check five more times to make sure that what we do to you is what you hoped for. She suddenly came up with great ideas. I could call a provider staff a bedside so that the provider and the whole team could reassure the patient we were on track. She even remembered some training she had had. I could turn the monitor towards the patient, show her the mistake getting fixed. It's called visual cueing. It's very calming to people. It doesn't matter what she came up with. But what was amazing is here's all I had to do as a leader. Now you think about all the times you get over-involved. This is my leadership move. I go, awesome, then go be great. And she did. It's like ninja tricks. Now, I didn't just drop her off, leave her hanging. I followed shortly after, not to rescue her, but to show that patient that there was some executive oversight on this issue. And then I did something that most of you aren't doing. And we're leaving learning and development on the table for all of our people. I claimed some time with her later and I said, thank you for pivoting so quickly. That's the love up, and here's the call up. I said, let's reflect. Given what happened this morning, what did that teach you about yourself? What did you learn about yourself in that situation? I'm going after integration evolution. We can emerge evolved from these times. No, we don't have to emerge traumatized. More people emerge from traumatic events with post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress. It depends on the leader who at the appropriate time says, let's make sense of this. Let's help hope make a comeback. Let's ensure that you mine this experience for growth and learning so that you can walk through the future more skilled evolved, you can emerge evolved from this. So I asked her, what did you learn about yourself? And she was great. She goes, you know, when I was asked to be part of a process that I benefit from, I didn't show up very well. I didn't play well. I got righteous, I got self-righteous, I got judgmental, I called for heads to roll. And I got to say, wow, now that you know that, now that you know that about yourself, you can move forward differently. How do you want to handle something like this in the future? I didn't have to wait for the performance review and make a bunch of allegations. I just used the moment to help someone self-reflect, and it really is the modern way to lead. Now, how many of you take it out of healthcare and into your world? How many of you would have jumped in and fixed that thing? Oh my gosh, thank you for bringing this disaster to me. I got this. We have like three ounce people in the crowd. Thank you. When we jump in to fix things for people, it seems helpful, but it's when helping hurts. We reinforce in our people that they are victims. Please, if there's ever anything other than the norm in your reality, escalate it. 
I want to be the bottleneck. I want to be the fixer. I want to reinforce the mindset that you are the victim and not capable of any of this. So how many of you would do something even worse, a little colluding? Not just I'll go fix it, but oh my gosh. I, the people in admissions, they're a bunch of idiots. I cannot believe this happened again. No one listens to us. We're always cleaning their... How many do a little collusion and then go fix it? Yeah, all of that's from that ego. It's helping bond with you against our colleagues. It teaches you not just that you're a victim, we're all victims of our partners in a different area. It's really dangerous stuff. Now, when you're doing that, you're in sympathy. And sympathy is different than empathy. Empathy is I see you're struggling. I see it right now. I see that you're struggling. And I go on to agree with you and feel sorry for you and collude with you. I know. We're all in this together. And I really teach you that you're a victim. Empathy is I see you're struggling. And then I call you up to greatness. Now, I want to ask you just to think about why would this work? Why did this question in a really high emotional triggered moment. Why would it work? Why didn't I get like punched in the face? <laughs> like why, what about it works? Some of it was my openness, some of it was my tone of voice, but the reason it worked has to do with how your mind works. And you may not know this, because I have a lot of training, but you have an invisible light switch on your forehead. I can see it. It's not fancy, it's not a dimmer switch, it's not connected to Alexa, it's just, a toggle switch, and it's either down or up. It can't be two th things at once. That toggle switch, for me, is my superpower as a leader. Because, here's how your mind works, when you're toggled down, you're in low self. You're seeing the world through the lens of ego. Now, most of you go, I'm not that egotistical. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about seeing the world through the lens of ego. It's a distorted view. The ego takes a fact and adds a super stressful story to it. I was driving the airport yesterday. Fact. Another fact. A gentleman um, moved into my lane, allowing less room than I prefer. <laughs> Do you know what my ego added to that? That guy's a male chauvinist pig who doesn't respect women drivers, and he's got a Husker bumper sticker, so obviously that's a problem, and he's trying to kill me. Now think about your commute to work. A guy moves into your lane, allowing less room than you prefer. Do you want choices you make following that move? You slow down, let him in. Good commute. When you're believing that he's trying to kill you, you know what choices you make after that move? You speed up you make things even more dangerous. If, somebody's gonna, if we're going to die, let's do this thing. <laughs> like, let's go down in a place of glory. When you're looking through the lens of ego, it's like wearing a pair of prescription glasses with the wrong prescription. It distorts everything you see. It takes a fact and adds a stressful story. And the story is always you are the victim, they are the villain. You see insults where there isn't any. People are like, hey, free ice cream. I'm like, I'm lactose intolerant. I came and believe <laughs> that you wouldn't offer me an alternative. People are like, it's free ice cream, right? When you're in ego, you don't see any options where you can plug and play. You're in your most primitive part of your brain. All you can see is fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And so what do you do? You want to have impact, but you're thwarted. So you don't have any impact. You don't even see what you could do. That nurse is like, I can't fix admissions. I can't fix the new medical record system. There's nothing I could do. 
when you're toggled down, you don't see options, so you pull back, and in order to feel better, you BMW drive, which is bitching, moaning, and whining. <laughs> and you collude with other people, and you share how victimized that you have been. You don't have impact, you self-soothe with venting or raging internally, right? When you're in low self, which all of you are probably a hundred times a day, you're pretty miserable. You're seeing the world as a dangerous, horrible place. And there's a whole theory of co-creation. When you see it that way, you invite a lot more of that in. The good news is when you're in high self, when you're toggled up, we call it high self. When you're in high self, you're using all of your intelligence. Your brain is actually in brain coherence. We can see it on um, imaging systems. And when you're toggled up, you have your full capacity. You are, by definition, by nature, more accountable, more creative, more collaborative, more inventive. And when you're toggled up, it's almost like you can see secret little portals opening up of ways you could have impact. When you're toggled down, you just disengage. When you're toggled up, you engage in these subtle openings, like, oh, I could go back and explain that this is a process working. Leaders in the modern world don't manage people, they manage the energy of people. They manage toggle switches. Now, you can't be in low self and high self at the same time, it's mutually exclusive. It's like a glitch in your brain. You can't be judging and helping at the same time. You can't be venting and self-reflecting at the same time. Impossible. So my secret little ninja trick, what gets somebody from low self to high self? Self-reflection. A question. Hey, ponder me this. Invite a different response. Most of the time, when you enter into crisis as a leader in the moment, you continue an exhausting discussion that is on the wrong track. If you want to be a leader, end all exhausting discussions and begin a new one. Doesn't matter what happened. Let's talk about what could happen. Let's not talk about why we shouldn't have to. Let's talk about what if we could. Let's move energy away from why we can't to how we could. You're an energy manager. And you have to start with managing your own energy and noticing how often your ego is playing you. My best advice is stop believing everything you think. The two biggest obstacles to growth are really ego and blind spots. And I'm excited to share that by popular demand, Cy Wakeman will be returning to the stage at the Game Changers Summit this November at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Next up, we have Hal Elrod, who is an internationally recognized personal growth expert and the best-selling author of the global sensation, Miracle Morning. His keynote at the 2019 Game Changers Summit ended with a standing ovation and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And I don't know if it was a high pollen count or someone was cutting onions, but I'll tell you, Hal just changed the game. He inspired our audience with a very simple message, win the morning, win the day. I'm gonna share with you the part one of the message today is the origin of the Miracle Morning. How did this whole thing come to be? It's practiced now by over a million people in over a hundred countries around the world. From Fortune 500 CEOs to my now good friend Robert Kiyosaki, who says the Miracle Morning has changed his life more than any other book that he's ever read. And so not the book, but the practice is what matters. It's not the book, it's the practice. It's doing something every day that enhances your life in a meaningful way and puts you in a peak physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual state first thing in the morning. Now, this all started for me with what I would call my first rock bottom. 
And a rock bottom, by the way, let me define that because we've all had them. There are those times in our lives when you face adversity at a level you've never encountered before, right? And it's relative to the person. I don't think you could ever judge that what you've gone through is worse than what I've gone through or vice versa, you know? Who you are as a person depends on how challenging an adversity or challenge might be. Um, but I was hit head on by a drunk driver at 20. Uh, I was a top salesperson for my company at the time. And I gave a speech that night to a smaller group, about 30 people, 30 of my peers. I got a standing ovation. It was my first standing ovation ever. And at, at 20 years old, it was like, that was kind of a dream come true. And driving home, the most unimaginable thing happened, as you, as you saw, and a drunk driver hit me at 70 miles an hour. I broke 11 bones on the left side of my body, heart stopped for six minutes, in a coma for six days. And when I came out of the coma, what I was faced with is the same thing that we are all faced with every single day. It's life. It's life. There's great days, there's tough days, there's rock bottoms, you know, there's everything in between. It's life, and it's how you respond to life that matters. What did I say earlier? I was saying, right, asking. What do we want? We want to just be happy. We want to feel good. We want to enjoy every moment. That's what we do everything we do for, to just feel good. And what stops us from feeling good is life. Or I should say specifically, our response to life as it happens to the circumstances that are out of our control. When I came out of the coma, I had to face this reality. The doctor said I would never walk again. And I went, okay. I, have, you know, I had a lot of goals at 20 that involved walking again. So that wasn't my ideal, but I thought through it. And I decided I can't change that I was in a car accident. I can't change that my body's broken. I can't change that I may never walk again, but I can choose how I'm going to feel about all of that. And I made the decision that I will be the happiest and the most grateful person I have ever been in my entire life while I go through the most difficult experience of my entire life. So much so that the doctors thought I was in denial. They called my parents in. This was two weeks after the crash. So that picture was taken probably a day or two after my car accident. And about a week and a half later, the doctors called my parents in and they sat them down. They said, we're concerned with Hal. Physically, he's made it through the worst, he's stable, he's gonna be with us for a long time. But mentally and emotionally, we're concerned that he's in denial or delusional. My doctor said, because every time we see your son, he's always smiling and laughing and telling jokes to make us laugh, and that's not normal. <laughs> they said, frankly, that's not normal for a 20-year-old young man that we're telling he's probably never gonna walk again, he's got permanent brain damage, which my wife will vouch for you, that shows up all the time. In fact, I'll probably forget what I'm talking about at least once or twice during the speech, but just help me out with that. But they thought I was in denial, so they asked my dad to go talk to me. They said, go talk to Hal, find out how he's really feeling. He, he, deep down inside, he's probably scared. He's probably really scared. They said he's probably feeling sad, possibly angry with the drunk driver, or with life, or with God. You know, he's really probably depressed, and if he's not depressed now, we, if we don't handle this in a safe environment, he can turn to some vices when he gets out of the hospital. Drugs, alcohol, suicide. We need to get to the bottom of how he's really feeling now. So they sent my dad in, and I'm in my hospital bed again. It was only a week and a half after that picture was taken, so I'm not in great shape. My, my leg was broken. I've got a metal rod in my leg, metal rod in my arm, two screws in my elbow, plates in my eye. Everything was up in a sling, and I'm watching Oprah for inspiration, you know. 
And my dad, I really was, by the way, it was not, not a joke. Uh, my dad comes in and uh, he asked me, he said, Hal, can you turn off the TV? And I sensed something anguish in his voice. And I look over and he's, his face is red and his eyes are welled up. And I knew he met with the doctor. I didn't know what they talked about, but I knew he met with the doctor. And he looks like he's about to break down in tears. So I'm assuming what? Bad news. I just, you know, like, oh gosh, what did you find out from the doctor? And I turn off the TV. And my dad expresses their concern that mentally and emotionally that they think I'm delusional, in denial, and I need to face my real emotions. He said, Hal, how are you really feeling? Are you sad? Are you scared? Are you depressed? Are you angry? It's normal to feel those things. And I look at my dad and he's holding back tears. And so I really, I really was thoughtful about this. Am I sad? Am I scared? Am I angry? Am I depressed? And it took me about 30 seconds. And I smiled and I looked at him. I said, Dad, I thought you knew me better than that. He said, what do you mean? I said, remember I live my life by the five-minute rule. He said, remind me of what that is. I said, I've told you and Mom this so many times. You'd be so much happier if you just listened to me. <laughs> I learned it at my, in my work, in my sales training at Cutco Cutlery. Any Cutco fans in the room? Yeah, I know. You always get some cheers for that. I sold Cutco from 19 to 26. But um, so in my Cutco training, I said, Dad, I learned the five-minute rule. It says it's okay to be negative when things go wrong, but not for more than five minutes. And my manager literally taught us to set our timer on our phone for five minutes when we'd have an, a, you know, a customer cancel their order or no-show an appointment, or we'd be working really hard toward a goal for the week or the month or the quarter, and we wouldn't hit it. Rather than like let that cause all this emotional anguish, I said... Um, you know, we learned, set your timer for five minutes, and then when the timer goes off, you say three very powerful words. Can't change it. And you just acknowledge that, well, wait a minute, I can't change what just happened. So there's no value in wishing I could. In fact, I'm gonna go as far as to say this. Every single negative emotion that we have ever experienced, which again, all we want is to feel good. As human beings, that's why we do anything. We wanna feel good. We're around people that make us feel good. We watch television that makes us feel good. We hopefully do work that makes us feel good. We go to the gym if it makes us feel good. And what stops us from feeling good is feeling bad. And here's the reality. Every negative emotion that you or I have ever experienced in our lives, every painful, hurtful, difficult emotion, from stress to anxiety to fear to sadness to depression to anger, Every emotion has been self-created by you. Every negative emotion you've ever experienced has been self-created and is completely optional. Some of you that might upset, like, I don't, I don't create my negative emotions. I have bad things happen in my life, and of course I feel negative emotions toward it. And that's the problem. We mistakenly think that it's the thing that's causing us to feel the way that we feel. You know, of course I'm sad. Look at what I lost. You know, of course I'm angry. Did you hear what she said? Of course I'm scared. What if that happens? Every negative emotion is self-created by our resistance to our reality. It is to the degree that we wish and want. Resisting is wishing and wanting that something were different that is outside of our control, typically because it just happened. When do we get upset over things that typically just happened? And it's now in the past. And unless you're Marty McFly with the DeLorean, Right? You can't go back in time and change it. It is what it is. And so I told my dad, I said, Dad, it's been more than five minutes. 
it's been almost two weeks. I can't change that I was in a car accident. I can't change that my body's broken and it's gonna be scarred for life and I've got permanent brain damage and doctors say I may never walk again, but I get to choose what this all means for me. And I've decided this is the best thing that ever happened to me. I don't even fully know exactly how that will play out. I can tell you this though, Dad, I said I've want, ever since I started speaking at conferences for our company, for Cutco, I said I always wanna be a motivational speaker, but I had like a normal life. What the hell would I talk about? You and mom were really good to me. I grew up in a middle-class family, like, you know, right? I go, I wouldn't have asked for this, but maybe that's why this happened. Maybe that's why this happened. Everything happens for a reason, but I believe it's our responsibility to choose the reasons. And I said, Dad, I've already thought about there's only one of two possibilities. And, you know, and he's upset. And I, I said, you and mom, I know you're worried, but you have nothing to worry about. Because possibility number one is I'll be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And if that's the case, I've already thought through it. I will be the happiest and the most grateful person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. Because I'm in a wheelchair either way. And by the way, let me pause. Everybody, what is your wheelchair? What are the experiences in your life? Maybe it's in your past from your childhood that causes you pain to this day, causes you painful emotions. Maybe it's daily things like traffic. You get frustrated in traffic. You don't have to, that's resistance. That's wishing that the cars would go faster. How about going, hey, I'm in traffic and I'm gonna be late. Awesome, I'm gonna enjoy every moment. And if you have to remember that story, I go, okay, if Hal could be the happiest, most grateful person in a wheelchair, I could probably do it in my Lexus. <laughs> no need to get so upset. So what causes emotional pain is our resistance to our reality. So what's the opposite of resistance? It's acceptance. And I don't have a graph that shows you that by me fully accepting what had happened to me, and not feeling bad about it for a second, actually five minutes, not feeling bad about it for more than five minutes, I was able to be at peace. And I don't have a graph that shows the mind-body connection, but there's a lot of science that backs it up. And I can just tell you that a week after that conversation with my dad, three weeks after I was found dead and my femur broke in half and one half came out of my thigh, and my, sorry to gross some of you out, my pelvis broke in three places between the center console. After all of that, the doctors came in with routine x-rays and they said, we don't know how to explain this, but how your body is healing so quickly, we're gonna let you take your first step tomorrow in therapy. And, thank you. That's how I felt, right? That's how I felt. Thanks, doc, that's awesome news. Uh, but even as an optimist, I, I, I wasn't thinking three weeks. I was thinking like a year, right? Like, you know, I, I thought possibly number one that I told my dad is I'll never walk again, but possibly number two is I might walk again. And once I accept the worst case scenario, and this is true for all of us, once you accept the things you can't change, you create emotional neutrality, right? It's a neutral emotional state through the power of acceptance. It's, I'm at peace. I might not be happy that thing happened. I wasn't happy I was in an accident. But happiness is an emotion and it's fleeting. You can be happy one minute and then a phone call changes that. We've all been there before. But when you live in a state of acceptance where you choose consciously to accept life as it is, past, present, and future, you give yourself that gift of emotional invincibility where you're not necessarily happy about things that go wrong, but you're not sad, angry, depressed, distraught. Through acceptance, you can be at peace. And when you're at peace, the emotional state is neutral and you can choose the emotion that best serves you in that moment. For me, I chose gratitude and optimism. I thought I'm grateful for all the things I do have 
And I'm optimistic about the fact that I might walk again. And I focused on it every day. I prayed about it. I meditated on it. I, I, I just, I, I dwelled on the possibility that I wanted because I had already accepted the one I didn't. And the doctors came in and said, you can take your first step today. And that was the day I took my first step. And the three words that unlock the door to emotional invincibility are can't change it. Set your timer for five minutes and after five minutes. And by the way, for those of you that are like, dude, five minutes isn't long enough. I need to be like, can I be upset for like five hours? Like, can I get a five day rule, right? So the first time I did, my, I did that, I learned from my mentor, my manager, five minutes. I'd set my timer for five minutes and I would, you know, oh, I can't believe that lady canceled that order. That was my biggest order of the month. I needed that. Come on. No, I can't believe it. How am I going to, now I'm not going to, I'm losing all that money. I'd already spent that money. Dang, right? And then the timer went off and sure enough, five minutes was not long enough. And I go, I five more minutes. Damn it. I'm so pissed about this. I can't believe it, right? But a funny thing happened. Not really funny, really an enlightening thing happened. It changed my level of consciousness around what was causing my negative emotions, that I was creating them through resisting my reality. And here's what happened. After doing this for about a week, I set my timer on my phone, because every time I did it, it made me realize, every time the timer went off, I would say, can't change it, and take a deep breath and give myself that gift of peace. But then one day, I set the timer for five minutes, and I go, oh, I can't believe that happened. That sucks. So not what I wanted. I've been working so hard for that. Four more minutes and 32 seconds. And I go, well, wait a minute. Why stew over this thing that is now in the past that I can't change for another four and a half minutes when I could get on the phone and schedule two or three more appointments in that time and be ready to you know, make up for this? And it taught me that whether you are in a horrific car accident, it is our choice and our opportunity to accept all things as they are and unlock that door to emotional freedom. And that five minute rule became the five second rule because all I needed was like something bad happening and to this day I go, ah, oh, son of a, ah, oh, it sucks. Anyway, can't change it, might as well move on. Not long ago, when the world was on pause and we were all in lockdown, we pivoted and decided to host a virtual conference, which would be known as the Evolve Summit. Over 6,000 attorneys joined for two days of leadership, marketing, and law firm growth strategies. Our keynote speaker, who closed out day one of that summit, inspired us to lead with integrity, hustle relentlessly, and never forget where we came from. I'm talking about Eric Thomas, critically acclaimed author, world-renowned speaker, and international business phenom, better known by millions around the world as E.T., the hip-hop preacher. Do me a quick favor, pull out a piece of paper, get a pen real quick, hurry up, piece of paper, right? All right, this is what I want you to do for me. I want you to write, put 30, put 30 on a piece of paper, 30, all right, 30, all right? Then I want you to put uh, December, all right, December, all right? Now, here's what I want you to do for me before we get started. I want you to write down what do you have to get done in the next 30 days, all right? I want you to write that down for me. What do you need to get done in the next 30 days, right? And then what do you hope to get accomplished, right, before the end of the year so we can go into 2022 strong? All right, now, you see what my shirt says. Just execute, all right? Now, here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to write down the names of, and again, I'm just... This is just a random number, three, four, five people that you love dearly. All right, so for Eric, I'm writing Dee Dee down, 
right? I'm writing Jalen down. It's my son. Didi's my wife. I'm writing Jada's name down. That's my daughter, my baby girl, the youngest. And then I'm writing Vanessa down. That's my mom, all right? Then I'm writing Gwen down. That's my grandma. So listen to me very closely. Every single day I get up and I look at what do you need to get done? What do you need to execute in the next 30 days so Didi never has to go back to work again? Now, for most of you who know me and you know my story, maybe 10 years ago, Didi was diagnosed with MS, right? So she's doing phenomenal, but she can't work in an environment where it's stressful, right? It kind of causes challenges with her MS. So Didi's never got to go back to work. Right? I paid for Jalen and Jada to go through Michigan State. Jada's finished her master's program. They work for the family company. My mom retired from Ford, uh, but my mom works for me now. So look, those 30 days are critical. Why? Because if I don't execute, if I don't execute, there are individuals in my life, uh, in my business, in my church, that don't live the life that they live right now. So we got work to do, guys. We got work to do. Why? Because we are leaders, right? And what we do impacts other people. Now, here's why I told you to write it down. Uh, you know, sometimes I get a little offended when people say, um, you know, we don't need motivation. Look, that's like saying you got a beautiful Range Rover, a Cadillac, Escalade, a Honda Accord, a Ford Fusion, an F-150, and you don't need gas. Right? I don't care what kind of car you have. We need gas. And so that motivation, that's fuel. That's fuel to get up when you don't feel like getting up. Let's just be honest. Every Monday, we don't feel like getting up. Every Tuesday, we don't want to wake up. Every Wednesday, we don't feel like getting dressed and going out. So when you think about the, your why, the intrinsic value, when you think about the people you love and you think about how their lives will be enriched and enhanced based on what we do, it makes you get up and go. So every day, I want you to do me a favor. Right? I want you to think about your why, right? The names you wrote down. I want you to think about your Didi. I want you to think about your Jalen. I want you to think about your Jada. I want you to think about your Vanessa. I want you to think about your Gwen. Why? Because going from a high school dropout to a PhD has changed Jada's life. It's changed Jalen's life. Listen to me very closely. Being the, one of the number one motivational speakers in the world, it has changed how my wife lives. It has changed how my daughter. You think Eric Thomas wanted to get up at 3 o'clock every morning? For those of you who watch me, you know for the last 10 years, I put out a video every morning at 3 o'clock. On Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday. You think every day at 3 I feel like getting up? You, you think every, every day at 3 I'm pumped up, I'm motivated? I've lost aunties, five aunts from cancer. I've lost friends. I've got friends in print. Like, Eric has bad days. But write this down. Everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. Write it down. Everybody wants to be a beast. Everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to have a successful company. Everybody wants to be a boss. Everybody wants to live the American dream until it's time to get up and do what real beasts do. All right? So I want you to daily think about your why. I want you to think about those people. If you don't show up, if you don't do the things that you're supposed to do, how that's going to impact their lives, all right? And then every day, I want you to look at it. I want you to get up and make it happen. All right, so here's what I want to share with you. Now, somebody asked me the other day, Eric, uh, like you, you, you landed in Atlanta. Like people are taking pictures with you. You go into restaurants. Like we've seen people post the pictures. We've seen you signing autographs. We've seen you hugging, kissing babies, right? Like E.T., come on, man. Like when did this happen? Let me be honest with you guys. Now, like, not like some of you, I'm not saying all of you, but like some of you, I never thought that I would be a leader. 
I never thought anybody would look up to me. Like, I didn't do the work that I'm doing to be anybody's leader. But guess what? I'm somebody's leader. And I want to show you where it started, right? So, so it started at the Olive Garden. I'll never forget. I'm in college. I'm married, uh, right? My wife and I bought an apartment, and, and I'm, I'm at the Olive Garden. And the only job they would give me was a host. Now, I didn't want to be a host. Why? Hosts don't get uh, tips. I need tips. I need cash. Right. I need to buy groceries. I need gas money and I can't wait every two weeks. Right. So so please listen to what I'm telling you. Everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. So 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 what's the first thing beasts do? Right. Here, here's what it is. Right. When you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe. All right. When you want to write it down, when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, then you'll be successful. All right. So when I woke up every morning and I put my Olive Garden outfit on and I went to the Olive Garden to be a host, in my mind, I said to myself, I'm going to be the best. Ho I will be the best host this franchise has ever had. Like I'll go down in the Hall of Fame as the best uh, host that there ever was. Why? Because if I host well, they may eventually make me a busboy. And I'm telling you all, it didn't oh, it didn't take two months. I went in, I went in every day. I went in every day with a smile. Listen to me. I act like I was the CEO. I, you heard what I said. As a host, I act like I was the CEO. I made sure that my uniform was clean, just like my grandma taught me, and pressed, just like my mama taught me. And I was there 10 minutes early, 15 minutes early, and I stood that. Look, look, in a matter of two months, I had become the head hostess. You heard what I said. I had become the head hostess, guys. And so I became the head hostess and people would literally come into the Olive Garden and, and they would ask for me, where's Eric, right? I made everybody feel good. You know, I remember they wanted salads. I remember they wanted soup. I would get them their water before uh, the waiter even came. I remember that some people like to sit, you know, we had a little garden area and then some people like to sit in the back, right? And some people like to sit at the table with just two tables. Some people wanted to bench. Oh, God, I was phenomenal. And so I went from being a host to the head host and before before you know it, I was busting tables. You heard what I said. I was busting tables, y'all. And I was one of the best that ever did it. And guess what? The servers would cash me out. Why? Because I did the birth. From the pasta we made to lasagna we made, we're wishing you. I still remember it to this day. You thought I was playing. I was the best of the best. When anybody had a birthday, it's like, go get Eric. He's got so much energy. He's got so much life. So the first thing I want you to do is that whatever your hands find it to do, don't do it for money. Don't do it for position. I want you to do it and I want you to give 120%. It doesn't matter what they pay you. It doesn't matter the title you get. It doesn't matter. Your, my father used to tell me when I was growing up, he wasn't my biological father, but he married my mom. And he used to say, I'm going to adopt you and I'm going to give you my last name. And when you walk out that house, you represent the Thomas. Everything you do, so you represent yourself and you represent your family. So number one, when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, not when you want to make money, not when you want position, but whatever your hands find to do, give it 120%. So when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe. So why do I say that? Why do I say when you want to succeed as bad as you want to eat? Because you can go 30 days without eating. Why don't I say when you want to succeed as bad as you want to drink? Because you can go three or four days, what, uh, days without water. Why do I say when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe? Because you can't go five minutes without air. You can't go four minutes without air. And so I say when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe. 
because I wanted to be the best host in the world because I wanted to make sure our rent was paid. I wanted to be the best host in the world because I wanted to be a provider for my wife. I wanted to be the best busboy in the world because I had a newborn child. I wanted to be the best busboy in the world because I wanted to pay for college. I wanted to be the best busboy in the world because I was given an opportunity. So write that down for me. Write that down. The next 30 days, I want you to take a look at it. The next 30 days, what do you need to accomplish? The next 30 days. Now, this is where I really get excited, right? We live in one of the greatest countries in the world. And we live in a country that you can be a high school dropout. You can be a kid who didn't have his biological father in his life. You could be a kid who eat out of trash can. You could be a kid again who, who, who was asked to leave Detroit public school system. You can be a kid that started from the bottom and go from a GED, not even a high school diploma, from a GED to a PhD. In this country, you can go from obscurity to the number one motivational speaker in the world. You can go from homeless to owning multiple homes and having a real estate portfolio. Listen to me, if you've ever traveled outside of this country, there are third world countries where it doesn't matter how early you get up. It doesn't matter what time you go to bed. It doesn't matter how hard you work. They don't have the resources. You live in a country that is prosperous, prosperous, prosperity, and you can have whatever you're willing to work for. I'm a living example. You can have whatever you're willing to grind for. And not only that, you can wake up one day and be a leader and help others. So listen to me very closely. As I move forward, I need you to understand that in this country, you have opportunities that you, bet you better take full advantage of. There are opportunities that you have. There are resources that you have, human resources, fiscal resources, uh, natural resources that you have in this country. And not just you, but if we do what we're supposed to do, we actually give other people an opportunity to live the American dream. So I want you to see, yep, yep, you, you, you remember that? When we were losing in basketball and we sent the dream team? Yeah, 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 we're the Chuck Daly's and, and our companies are the Michael Jordans, the Scottie Pippins, the, the Clyde the Glide, the, 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 the Charles Barkley, the Magic Johnson, the, the Malone. Like, as American citizens, I now have a firm. I have a company where I'm helping other people to be a part of the American dream. So I want you to wake up every single day and I want you to be excited about the fact that you're an American. But listen to me very closely. I don't want you just to take. We're not in this country to be parasites. We're in this country to add value. We didn't get to where we are today because we took shortcuts, right? Kobe called it the mumble mentality. Again, it is the notion that everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to get up early. It's a mentality. I tell young people all the time, I don't go to sleep when I'm tired. I don't go to sleep when I'm tired. I go to sleep when I'm done. Sometimes I'm done at noon. Sometimes I'm done at two. Sometimes I'm not done for two days, so I can't get any rest. Everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. And what we must do as leaders is teach those that we, we're servant leaders, those individuals that are part of our company, we have to teach them the mentality, the mumble mentality, which means what? That we go above and we go beyond. That we do whatever it takes we spend as much money, we invest as much as needs to be invested. Like, look at, this, look at this facility, guys. We invest whatever it takes. We invest in resources. We invest in technology. We invest in software. We invest in lights. We invest in human resource. It's the mumba mentality. We do whatever it takes. We do not stop as American citizens. We do not give up. We do not quit. 
We do not surrender. We do whatever it takes to get the job done. Why? Because we live in a phenomenal country. We have phenomenal opportunities. And while the day is still young, we got to go get it. If you enjoyed hearing E.T.'s story, then be sure to pre-order his upcoming book, You Do You, Ignite Your Power, Your Purpose, and Your Why. So as we close out this episode, we're looking back at my fireside chat with the founder and CEO of America's largest injury law firm, the one and only John Morgan. John believes that hunger, the insatiable desire to win, can't be taught. You're born with it. During our conversation, John described how he's able to gauge whether or not someone has that hunger. I've always been fascinated with paper boys. And I'll tell you why I've been fascinated with paper boys. Paper boys are 10, 11, 12 years. They don't even have paper boys anymore, but you're 10, 11 years old and you're tied to this job every day, rain, sleet, snow, grouchy customers, bad customers, but you do it every single day. Those paper boys, I believe, are lions. They have that internal it. Warren Buffett was a paper boy. Oprah Winfrey was a paper girl. When I meet people, especially my age, I'll say, can I ask you a question? i say, what? i say, were you a paper boy? Were you a paper girl? And when they tell me they were, it's like my own little Briggs-Meyer personality test. I know who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with a lion or not. And so that is the internal thing. And it's just as lucky as being Shaquille O'Neal and being seven foot two and run like a gazelle. And I imagine it's probably going to lead to a very frustrating, difficult life if you're not that person, but you try to be. If the sloth tries to be the lion, right? But here's the great thing. There's also another animal, and they're mules. There's the hardworking mule, and there's the lazy mule. The hardworking mule, you put that hat up, on the ears and the ears stick out, the daisies, and that mule can plow all day long. And then you got another mule who's built the same way but won't do anything. The one secret that I have found, it's not brains, it's the willingness to work. Nobody that I know that's very successful has not been a hard worker. And so if you think you're missing something, put the time in. When I look around my firm and around the offices in America, when I look at the most successful people, they're the people in the office. They're the people trying the cases. They're the people working on the weekends. The common denominator for the most successful people that I know in my life is not that they were the smartest, is they were the hardest working. So you can actually work yourself to where you want to be. Even if you're a mule, because mules can work for 10 hours. And at the end of the day, there's this beautiful field that produces a whole bunch of vegetables. I remember in that you can't teach hunger. You talk about there's some that go, you know, coming out of the weekend, they come back as satiable slugs. And then there's others that are just constantly insatiable. You ask them, when are you done? They're not done. When is it enough? It's never enough. There's two types of people. And, and here's the problem inside of our firms. Inside of all of our firms, you have you, and then you have the people inside of your firm. You have one business objective. The people working with you or for you have another objective. 
Now, their objective may not be what your objective is. Their objective may be, I got to work this hard, get this much, and then I want quality of life. And almost everybody has a limit of satiability. If I get that, I'm done. Most people, I'd say 95% or more, have a satiable appetite. But then there's that rare bird that has an insatiable appetite. And no matter what they have, they want more. And it's not about money because you can only eat one cheeseburger and drink one Maker's Mark. Your pockets are bulging, but you can't eat more than one cheeseburger and one Maker's Mark. It's about winning. It's about succeeding. It's about being respected. And so what I'm always looking for inside of all of my organizations are those people who have that insatiable appetite that they're never going to stop because they want to be successful, respected, and revered. You had an early job, I think, as uh, Pluto, right, at, at Disney World. Could you imagine that? I did magic at Disney. I was Pluto at Disney. I loved Disney. I loved Walt Disney. I met Roy Disney one night when I was doing magic at Merlin's. He came in, and I said, where do you stay when you come here? And he points out, I was at Merlin's Magic Store, and he points out of the castle, and he says, I stay there. I go, where? He goes, Walt built us an apartment there. I said, Mr. Disney, I can't believe I'm meeting you. He says, John, don't call me. Mr. Disney, call me Roy. I said, why? He goes, call me Roy. And I decided that night at Merlin's Magic Shop, if I ever had a business, nobody would ever call me Mr. Morgan. Everybody called me Don. So anytime anybody tries to call me John or Mr. Morgan, no go. It's if, if Walt Disney can be Walt, I can be John. And I loved working at Disney. The best thing about it, like when I was Pluto and I'd be standing at Main Gate, tram, the, the monorail's coming at the beginning of the day, and you look up. And here comes grown men in sandals, running, full tilt, you know, knocking kids down to come take a picture with Pluto and Mickey. And then first of the day, we had the VIP unit out there. All day long, you're working with people who are having the single best day of their entire life. They've come to Disney World. So I loved that. And so I was inspired by, uh, by Walt Disney and my time at Disney World. So you mentioned Roy Disney. So Walt, the visionary, he had Roy. Do you have a Roy? I have a Roy. My wife is very smart. I kind of consider her my Roy. The only thing that she has not understood yet is she thinks she has an absolute veto on everything. And so our fights come from, I'm looking for advice. I'm not looking for a veto. So whenever we clash, but I rely on her. And, and yeah, look... If you read a book a long time ago called The Millionaire Next Door, it takes two guys that make the same amount of money, but at the end of their life, one has a lot of money and one doesn't have a lot of money. The one thing you find about the people who have a lot of money, rule number one, stay married. When you start cutting shit in half, you, you, lose, you, lose, you lose half. The Millionaire Next Door always relied on professionals, CPAs and lawyers. And even though we're lawyers, we're not that kind of lawyer. So I rely heavily. So I got a whole team of Roy's around me. In, in terms of other causes, I, I know now you've expanded uh, in Florida, really pushing for raising the minimum wage and then the legalization of marijuana. So those, I know those are things you're very, very passionate about. If you kind of speak to, speak to those, and then I want to talk about the, the pot daddy stuff. First of all, 
I think politics is broken. My wife's Republican. I was a Democrat. I look at the left. They're crazier in hell. I look at the right. I mean, listen, when people are wearing buffalo hats with horns, I'm out. What I believe is that most of us agree about most things. You know, I was polling real high. They all, everybody wanted me to run for governor. I was polling real high. But, you know, I don't want to get chewed up like that. Plus, you know, I live in Hawaii half the year. My brother was paralyzed, and marijuana has been a very important part of his life. Because if he didn't use it, Percocet, Xana, I mean, he was a zombie. And so I decided to try to legalize medical marijuana. And I missed the first time by a fraction. And I came back and did it again and passed it with 71% of the world. And then I believe the reason this country is so mad is that the have-nots are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I believe one day, we don't think it could happen, Marie Antoinette didn't think it could happen. Batista didn't think it could happen. The czar didn't think it. You push people so far, they'll just come take your shit because nothing from nothing equals nothing. If your kid's hungry, people are leaving islands in cardboard boats because nothing from nothing equals nothing. So I believe that the issue of our day is income inequality. So I say, you know what? I've already passed marijuana. I believe in the minimum wage. I passed the minimum wage, which is hard in a state like Florida, with 61% of a landslide. What that proved to me was that most of us agree on most things. But if you put an R or a D next to it, we don't agree except about 47% on one side and 47% on the other, and the 6% decide the best. So I did the marijuana for my brother. I did the minimum wage because I feel passionately. I pay all my people at least $15 an hour. And I think I wanted to prove to America and to other politicians, and I, and I think you'll see now, people are always talking about Florida's minimum wage. I think in this deep South, for that to have happened was a seismic shift, and now you're seeing businesses are voluntarily raising their wage to 16, 17. And I believe it's good politics for self-preservation because if you don't, there'll be a day where you'll be living in Mad Max where people will be coming into your house, taking your stuff because you get so desperate, you have no choice. So those have been the things I've done in Florida. Very gratifying. And it's worked out for me because I've been like on a crusade down in Florida for 10 years. Now, there's going to be some people that are, are watching this or listening to this, and they'll say, well, that's that's easy for him to say. That's easy for him to do. And a lot of what we talked about yesterday is the fact that everything worthwhile is an uphill climb. And it, it seems like everything you try to do, there's always some resistance or pushback against it. Like I even saw recently they're trying to cap the amount that you can actually donate to some of these causes and so on. If you could speak to just the friction that you've had to go up against to really get things done, and not just with the, you know, the marijuana or the minimum wage, but just even in growing the law firm. Well, look, there's always resistance. There's always vision blockers, I call them. There's always somebody trying to stop you from doing this. Anything that's worthwhile is not easy. But what I would say to that is this. Sam Walton had 10 rules. Number 10 was the most important. And what he said was swim upstream. When you see people coming downstream, they're on these big floats, sucking on my ties, 
cocoa butter all over their fat asses, just rolling down the river. They don't know where they're going. They're just going somewhere fast and maybe over. But Sam Walton said, swim upstream. So you're in there swimming upstream. You're passing the people in the floats and the inner tubes sucking on the Mai Tais with the cocoa butter who may be going to their death. But once you get to the top, there's a very furrowed, fallowed soil. And when Sam Walton left downtown Ben Franklin and went out to a field and built a box, kind of a box like this, everybody said, you're crazy. But guess what? He swam upstream. And what I will tell you, Mike, is when people tell you you can't, that just means they can't. That doesn't mean you can't. That doesn't mean, that just means they won't. It doesn't mean you won't. And so when people say no, I have a saying, you know, no means yes. People tell me no, no means yes. And so you have to make sure that you understand that a lot of people are trying to stop you from being great because they know they can't be great. And misery loves company. I want to give a huge thank you to every single one of our incredible Summit speakers over the years. If you don't want to miss out on your chance to experience even more amazing thought leaders and leadership experts live and in person, be sure to reserve your tickets to this year's Crisp Game Changers Summit taking place on November 2nd and 3rd at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Yes, it's taking place in a Super Bowl stadium. All you've got to do is visit crispsummit.com to reserve your tickets. And since you're a listener of this podcast, I'll hook you up. Just use promo code podcast when you're buying your tickets at crispsummit.com and you'll get a special discount off every ticket type. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. Mm-hmm.